Good evening, everyone, and welcome to our new venue for the Discovery Series. I'm Roger Pines, dramaturg at Lyric Opera, and I hope you are looking forward to all the Discovery Series sessions as much as I am. I should mention that for Parsifal, which is actually going to be next week, October 10th, Thursday at 6 o'clock, we will actually be over at the Art Institute. That's the one exception to this venue. That is going to be with our director, John Caird, and our designer, Johan Engels. And there will also be a pre presentation by one of the curators from the Art Institute. Uh, we did this with Electra last season, uh, and it was very successful. So I it's also a free event next week, so I invite all of you to come to hear more about Parsifal from, from that brilliant duo, John Caird and Johan Engels. I need to ask all of you to please turn off your cell phones and anything that beeps. We're so privileged to have three extraordinary artists with us this evening to discuss Verdi's Otello. Lyric's Otello, Johan Bota, is widely regarded as today's preeminent interpreter of that role. Among the major uh, opera houses where he's triumphed as Otello are the Met, San Francisco Opera, and the Vienna Staatsoper. He has been honored at the Staatsoper as a Kammersänger and has sung a very wide variety of leading roles there. He started lyric previously in La Gioconda, Turandot, Pagliacci, Lohengrin, and Die Meistersinger. And this season, he's returning to Munich and to Covent Garden for Die Frauen Schatten, to Frankfurt for Tiefland, and to Vienna as Parsifal and Andrea Chenier. Anna Maria Martinez is making her role debut as Desdemona at Lyric, and this follows successes internationally in other Verdi roles, including Violetta, Luisa Miller, Amelia Grimaldi, and most recently at Covent Garden, Alice Ford in a new production of Falstaff. She has given memorable performances here as Nedda, Marguerite, and Mimi. Later this season, she will be Lyric Opera's first Rusalka, and that opera was a triumph for her at Gleinborn in Munich and on CD. She'll also soon return to Munich for Bohème, to Munich and Vienna for Butterfly, and for, to Houston for her role debut as Bizet's Carmen, which she will then reprise in Santa Fe. French conductor Bertrand de Billy is debuting at Lyric with Otello. Maestro de Billy has enjoyed triumphant tenures as music director of Barcelona's Teatro Liceo and Vienna's Radio Symphony Orchestra. He has made a considerable impact at the Met, Salzburg Festival, and the state operas of Vienna, Munich, Berlin, and Hamburg. He's also led the Cleveland Orchestra, the Orchestre de Paris, and all the major German orchestras and he's also amassed an extensive discography and videography. This season, he has a dizzying schedule of opera productions in Vienna, Frankfurt, Munich, London, and Tokyo. So please join me in welcoming to the Discovery Series Ana Maria Martinez, Johan Bota, and Bertrand de Billy. Well, we haven't done Otello at Lyric in quite a while, so I just want to refresh your memories about the plot and uh, Anna Maria and gentlemen, see if I do okay in reducing Otello to 60 seconds. Otello, the Moor of Venice, is a general of the Venetian army and governor of Cyprus. At his fortress there, his ensign Iago plants the seeds of jealousy, hinting that Otello's Venetian wife, Desdemona, is in love with his captain, Cassio. Otello's suspicions gradually overwhelm him to the point where he shames Desdemona 
before the assembled dignitaries of Venice who have gathered in Cyprus. That night, he smothers Desdemona in her bed. Too late, it's made clear to him that his wife is innocent. Overcome by remorse, he stabs himself. Okay, is that all right? All right. So, so I want to start by asking all of you, in performing this piece, you are dealing with one of the greatest masterpieces of the entire repertoire a piece that's generally taken on only by singers at a particularly high level of technique and artistry. So when did you individually feel that you were ready for Otello to enter your active repertoire? And also, uh, the second part of the question is, what pieces do you feel prepared you to, to perform Otello? Well, for me, for... Uh I never thought that I was prepared to do it for the first time because every time you do a piece for the first time, it's like you know doing a gambling, and uh, you never know how it's going to end in the end of the show. Um, the first run was pretty scary because um, if you know Otello, it's a, it's a very very dramatic piece, and uh, you can get lost in that feeling of hatred. And when you're on stage, you have to be as cool as can be and be in control as, can be, as you can be. So um, for, I saw my first show, uh, not only the Casio, but everybody else was scared to death. Even I was scared at one point. I thought, yeah, this is not the way to do it. <laughs> uh, the second, after the second show, you know, this piece never leave you alone. Uh, in preparation for it, my first my singing teacher told me, if you want to do Otello, you have to be able sing, to sing Pagliacci three times in a row in one day. Uh, full voice, then you can do Otello. <laughs> uh, I won't recommend it, but um, it was one of the th pieces that I used to prepare myself for the, uh, for the Otello. So, Anna Maria, this is your first Desdemona. Mm -hmm. How did you decide that, okay, the time is right now? Well, it's, it's a dream role, so I had wanted to do it for a while. And um, I think that I felt ready to, to take it on a few years ago, which is more or less when the, the offer was, was presented. And uh, I thought, okay, I, I, can, I can do this. And I've done a few other Verdi um, roles that I think are, are much, uh, of a much greater stretch uh, for example, Louisa Miller, I think, is a bigger sing than this, and that's, that's uh, pretty comfortable. And uh, when I did Chocho San, uh, then I thought, well, if I can do Butterfly. <laughs> it, it, it really, that's the role that, that makes it comfortable to do just about anything else in your repertoire. If you can do that comfortably, you can, you can play with it. But I would say that still within this role of this Emona Verdi writes such beautiful bel canto lines, that everything else that I've done, all the Adinas that, that I did, and we did Lelisir, Petron and I did uh, Lelisir together years ago, um, that type of repertoire really does uh, prepare you, and Mozart as well, just kind of sets the, the way. Petron, when was your first, did, had you done a lot of repertoire before you got to Otello? Yes, uh, first of all, I apologize for my English. It's very French, my English, yeah? <laughs> um, yes, I, I had the chance to conduct a lot of Verdi before, and uh, in Dessau, in German language, it was Masnadieri, Due Foscari, all these fantastic operas, but non well known. And, well, and then I think it was three or four years ago, my first Otello. But in the fact, if I just have the right to say something special for me, 
I come from a family, from my family never had a musician. I am the first mistake. And um, I was a child, and I was in a boy choir at school. And I was 12, 13, and the, the chorus master told me one day, you know, Bertrand, I had, I had a good voice, and I did all these solists in the cantata, Bach, and all these things. That the start of love for singers, I think, the voice, the singing. And he told me, you know, they are doing now Otello in Opera Garnier. Dress rehearsal is tomorrow, and they have problem with the children choir. And they ask us if you could learn the part for tomorrow, because you are good rhythmic, you know? and um, you will have an audition for that. And I learned this in the night. I had an audition the day after with a very tall guy, fat. He was very nice, and he go, told me, okay, you go on stage. They took my glass away, and then without glass, it's a disaster. And I said, what can I do? And I was the first, and he told, you see this man? Yes, more or less. You go to him, you do that, and you start to sing. And then you go around, do you see this lady? Yes? Yes, you go to her, and then you go here, and you come back. Ah, good. I did the dress rehearsal, and they said, okay, wonderful, you will do the shows. And I was in the choir. What I didn't realize, this big was Nelo Santi, this man was Placido Domingo, <laughs> this lady was Margaret Price, the other one was Jean Berbier, and Pascalis was Iago. That was my first uh, meeting with Otello. I think I am the only one here who can say I sang Otello with Placido Domingo. Yes. <laughs> but I can say that I do the duet with him a lot. Uh, yes. <laughs> now, any discussion of this piece, of course, needs to begin with Shakespeare. So I should ask all of you, does reading the play help you or does it get in your way? Or does a little bit of both? Well, uh, when I started preparing myself for Otello, I read, uh, we started with it in South Africa, actually, when I was studying there in the opera school. Uh, we were also forced, not gently, by the opera school uh, to do plays from Shakespeare on stage. And one of the plays were the Otello. So I knew the Shakespearean play very well. And every time when I come to a, a new production, I will read the Shakespearean play again uh, to find something new, you find so many nuances of Otello in the Shakespearean play, um, which you can build into the opera. Because if you look at the opera itself, Verdi and Boito have took the most important things out of the play from Shakespeare and put it into the opera. So if you want to learn more about your character, you read the Shakespearean play. It's very, very, very helpful. So is there anything, do you think, in the play that you wish had been taken into the opera? I, I would say, at least for my character, the, the first act that we don't have yes. in the opera. Yeah, so that everybody can have to understand mm -hmm. where the whole thing comes to. Mm -hmm. Tell us what you learn about Otello and Desdemona from that first act that we don't get in the opera. Well, they um, basically break a very big rule in Venice that time, uh, getting married without the consent of Desdemona's father. Uh, 
they were brought in front of the Dojin, uh, the, the, governor, the government at that time, uh, where her father made a claim and said, who gave you the right to marry her? And then she comes in to make things more worse into the Dojin, uh, into the government office and tell her, well, I did it out of love. And at the same time, a messenger arrives telling them uh, there's a, a big, uh, the Turkish uh, army is invading the, the Persia and please can you send your army. So Otello was summoned to go and f uh, fight this war, but was also told in the f first act of Shakespeare that this matter is not over with. When you come back, you will have to stand trial for that. And then this Demona decided, no, she's going with him. And um, he uh, entrusted this Demona to Yagov, strangely enough, to take care of her, to brought her to the island of Cyprus. So that's a big chunk of history that you don't know. And then uh, in the third act of Othello, when the Dojan arrives with a message that he's summoned back to uh, Venice, all of that is in the background of his mind, and he knows now this is going, he's going to be challenged with that. And then, of course, it's been left, uh, his whole position has been left to Cassio, which is, I think, injury to insult. And that's where the point where he totally, um, basically, do the, uh, that was the one point that flipped him completely. Right. Mm -hmm. And there, there, something else I would say, just uh, to add to what you've just said, uh, this Demona is, is uh, quite bold and uh, a mind of her own. Oh, yes. Very courageous. And I think that in, in most of the writing that Verdi has for her, she sounds so soft and so naive and so gentle. And she is, she has those attributes. But what we miss is that tremendous courage. And uh, I'm trying to bring some of that in, into my view of her, especially in our act three. Yes. Instead of just being like a deer in headlights uh, with, with what he's accusing her of, to be a little more confrontational because she has to make this relationship yes. work. She has nothing else. Mm -hmm. No more daddy, no more family, no more going back home. Yes. This is it. So even though he's freaking her out, uh, she's, she's got... And that's the tragedy about the whole piece. Bertrand, in preparing the piece, did you read the Shakespeare? Yes. Did it of help course, you? But not in English. <laughs> <laughs> um, of course. But I absolutely agree with what you said. For me as a conductor, the most important, what I learned uh, reading Shakespeare, Othello or Hamlet, because I just did Hamlet before, uh, is the general atmosphere of Shakespeare. Because my job as a conductor, of course, is to bring the people together, but to try to find the line for three hours. And um, I decided before to come to Chicago, I did a concert in Copenhagen the week before. It was a Shakespeare program. It was really done like that. It was a piece from Liszt, Hamlet, then Tristia from Berlioz, it's about the death of Ophelia, and then Summer Night Dreams from Mendelssohn. And that was very interesting for me to try to create the atmosphere, this contrast, this 
unbelievable sadness and this confrontation, this, what you said before, to be alone, you know, to understand this. And uh, I told the musician here, the reality is, is an orchestra, yeah? Uh, sometimes what you said, it seems very soft, but you have something. Brewing underneath. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, and that's for me what I learned reading Shakespeare. You, you, you read something, but you feel behind something very strong. You have um, a lot to deal with, Bertrand, in the, in the first, say, six or seven minutes of the piece, the opening of Act One. So much is going on musically, so much is happening on the stage. So what is the greatest challenge that faces you in the pit in coordinating all of those events and all the forces that you have on stage. Just do that before. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's one of the incredible being. I brought the, the, the score. If you want to have a look after that, on the first page of this score, you normally have the orchestra of uh, three flutes. For Otello, you have orchestration, and then lighting, bombs, Organo and uh, what all that? Cannons. Cannons, bombs. It, and Verdi writes exactly when he wants to have the, a light effect for the storm and the bomb. It's unbelievable. You have trumpets outside, you have the choir coming, it's no overture. And you bring the first bar, it's written tutta la forza. And then 10 bars later, pianissimo. Uh -huh. You have 10 seconds to create this atmosphere. And the danger is to be just 40 and just metro 40, to have this normal. You have to put so loud and then so piano. And it was funny because when I arrived here in Chicago on the 18th of September, when we landed, it was such a storm here. Mm -hmm. It was unbelievable. I said, it's perfect. You know, <laughs> what I saw here was... Uh, very special, and you have to bring this extreme, yeah? not like that, but. So I hope all of that comes to all of your minds in the first few <laughs> seconds of the performance. Now, Johann Verdi yes. gives you one of Otello's biggest challenges and the first thing that you sing. So in your preparation for going on stage to sing the Azultate, do you prepare for that any differently from the way you would prepare for the opening of another role in your repertoire? Well, yes, no, not really. Um, uh, when the storm starts, I mean, I always, uh, in the moment this, the, the opera starts, I'm backstage, standing right and ready to go on. And when that music starts playing, I mean, that, as you will hear it, it's quite exciting and it gives you the adrenaline shoot that you need uh, to go on stage. But not only that, you know, um, when I'm going on stage, I'm, getting, I, I, I'm sort of getting into a zone where I become the character. So when I'm at that point, I am Otello. I was thinking the, like the man, I'm walking like him, and I will even drink the water and everything from like the way I would think he, would sh he should do it. Uh, to go out for the Esultate is, of course, um, I mean, when the first time I did it at the Met, I was really going to, I, at that one point, I just realized, oh, God, uh, how many tenors, Vincas, uh, 
all the tenors who sang this before me here, now I'm singing it here, you know, it's very, very, um, you, you, you get very humbled by that feeling. But then you realize you have to do your own version of it. And all right, the Esoltate is starting with a huge um, adrenaline ship and your forte. But then when people look at the score, um, they don't realize that 80% of Otello has been written in pianissimo. So I challenge myself to sing, if there's four P, I mean, there's one point where I have to, where I'm threatening her because of the handkerchief, where I have to sing 4P with a guai. And I thought to myself, now how the devil am I going to get that? How am I going to do that? So, obviously thing I did, I go to my singing teacher and I said to her, and she said, well, I can teach you. So I said, well, teach me. So that's what we did. <laughs> so that's pian e si 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 Well, you know, uh, Verdi is, as uh, Maestro Bertrand said, you know, Verdi is very, very particular. He writes on it four P's and cupo. That means you have to find a color for the voice to bring out that effect that he wants. Explain to everyone what cupo actually means. Well, cupo, oh, God. Um, it, is, it means that if you take the voice, you just cover it, you, make, you darken the voice, you, you bring it a more darker color. Now, for me, it's easier to do because I started out as a bass baritone, funny enough. Uh, then my voice played a joke on me and I became a tenor. So, and a soprano? Well, I was a boy soprano in, the, in school. I mean, I sang the Queen of the Night aria as a kid. <laughs> And then my voice broke, and my singing teacher started working with me every day for five minutes, ten minutes, uh, falsetto voice. And after that, the voice just moved up into the bass baritone. You can hear when I'm speaking. I'm not speaking like a normal tenor, um, which, of course, for me is difficult because I tend to, to forget that I'm a tenor, and I will take the whole mass of the bass baritone and I just go up to the high C with it. Uh, if I do that constantly, I can hurt the voice by that. So I always have to think another way of warming up. And I mean, you've heard me warming up. A lot of my colleagues think I'm total, total crazy, <laughs> warming up with a falsetto voice. Um, some sopranos will storm in and say, who's the soprano here? You know? <laughs> uh, so that's one of, I have the ability that I can uh, dive into the bass baritone for if I need to color, a color for a certain type of color for a certain way of singing it. Right. But then I have to be very careful just five seconds later to just turn that around again to come from the top to sing the rest of the opera. Right. Um, Anna Maria, you have a silent entrance. Uh, in the first few minutes that you're on stage, you are observing what's going on. So what is most important to you to convey about Desdemona in those moments before you even begin to sing? Because we haven't seen, in the opera, we haven't seen Shakespeare's first act, I want everyone to feel her strength, her vitality, her youth, and also she's coming from their uh, bedroom. Their marriage has not been consummated yet. And she's ready. <laughs> and she's like, where are you? <laughs> 
So she's, I think, coming out to find him. And she's startled to see everybody. Uh, so I, I want you to get passion. I want you to get urgency. Uh, tremendous presence. Um, and also admiration for him. She loves him so deeply. She only has eyes and ears for him. And how she first fell in love with him was all the stories she would hear him say. And uh, that's part of then their, their duet, I think, is, is if I may say that now. I think that uh, when, when, you, when you are hearing this beautiful, romantic, passionate music, it is their in a way their dance before the first time that they ever make love. And how, I think she's scared, but she's also ready. And I also think that uh, she wants to quickly get into the mode of telling stories together. And she says, do you remember, do you remember? And she starts that, and that's how she starts to get excited. And uh, it's, it's quite a sensual moment for both of them. I think both of them are scared at that point. Because he's, that's what makes him so vulnerable to Iago, is that he's, it's the first time in his life as a warrior he encounters love. And that's the tragic point also, that he doesn't know what to do with that love. He's so unsecure of himself. I think that's the most point that I think we try to bring over is that in between she starts telling, speaking about the stories because he's still in such a turmoil because of the fight that he just stopped between his captains and he, demoting one captain, whereas he could have told him, I see you tomorrow in my office, he immediately demoted Cassio because he sees her coming in. And I think that's one of the reasons why his derailment is so tragic and so big. You talked about the love duet before. So, Bertrand, I wanted to ask you, I mean, this love duet in Otello is really unique. I mean, it's so different from any other soprano tenor duet in Verdi, whether you're talking Traviata, Bocca Negra, Ballo, or Don Carlo, Aida, any of those. So what is, do you think the secret is to giving it the proper impact musically? You know, I think it's important to realize that when you wrote Otello, it was just after the new version of Don Carlo, Boca Negra, and just before Falstaff. And for me, this love duet, they never sing together. Never. It's just very, one very, part. Uh, yeah. It's very special. They never sing together like Traviata, like in Boca Negra less, but um, they sing the same, they sing the same language, but not together. It means that it's for me so sensual because uh, he starts with four celli solists. And when she starts to sing, it's not a new music. She comes and we spoke about it uh, after the, before the dress rehearsal, I said to her, you know, when you start to sing, it's his music. And you take his music and then you give him back and up, up. Yeah. It's like that. But it's never together. And it will be the secret for Iago to get him. Iago is like a snake coming. OK, I am with Cassio. I, I sing Cassio. I am now with her. I sing like her. I am with him. I take his mentality. And then I can do what I want with that. And this duet is unbelievable for that. And the second thing for me 
even if it looks quiet, the excitement you fantastic described before, in the orchestra you have this sexuality, excitement, is really in the orchestra, even the fact, oh, this story, something will happen with that. From the first time they both, they both are on stage, you feel in the orchestration, danger, danger. Yeah, and you can hear the danger in the orchestra also. There's a, it's very subtle. You have, that's why I said you always have to come and listen to the piece more than once to, to hear what the orchestra is doing. If, if I'm, when, uh, that's the most fun if you're doing a Zitzprobe. You're sitting and you can hear the orchestra for the first time because when you're on stage, you're so concentrating on what you're doing, uh, where you have to walk, lightning, singing, and everything. Uh, when you're sitting in a Zitzprobe, you can hear the orchestra. And you can hear, aha, okay, this is a point where I as a character can turn on that f color on the voice uh, to bring that little bit of danger out without really giving it away so quickly. Yeah. I mean, that's the most amazing. And during the first staging rehearsal for the first act, I, I, I asked him once to come in front. And I just told to the four cello, player, cello players, do quintet with him, just here. And then we did it twice, that they knew, okay, we, the fourth cello, when he's changed his note, it's be because of that. And then the clarinet, when you come, and this is the beginning of timbre music, or timbre yeah. choir, or timbre, timbre, yeah, to be together, just open. Wow. Uh, Johan, you have, um, a lot to do in Act Two. There's yes. one significant moment for the role after another, both musically and dramatically. So can you give us an idea of what his state of mind is at the beginning of Act Two and where he is by the end of the act? Well, for the first part of the act, uh, for the first part, he's coming to do business, normal business. And he, uh, he's running this war uh, machine and he have to do business, you know, uh, office stuff that you have to finish. You have to sign papers and that Yago is there. I mean, he comes in, he seems without even thinking of something bad, uh, Casio uh, greets Desdemona. And for me, it's nothing. For me, I come in, I work, I'm, I'm ready to work. Then Yago starts asking stupid questions and, you know, he's getting a little bit irritated by it but not so far that he really says, no, uh, she's guilty of it, all right? What, where it starts for him to really, a little bit of a derailment, where is in the point where before the, uh, just when the quartet starts, um, she called him uh, Sposo, my, my husband. And, that sort of let him a little bit think, and I feel, you know, he's, he's directly after that, he said, you know, maybe it's because I'm older than she is, because you have to remember that Otello is by far older than she is in the Shakespearean drama too. So that's one of the reasons he think, okay, maybe because I'm a different color, you know, maybe I'm getting older. And Iago have just planted something and 
his whole mind because he's so insecure of himself, because he never have encountered love like unconditional life like she's doing, he never have that. He's coming from a slave background. That you see in the, that's what you see and uh, when you read the Shakespearean drama. He is coming from slavery. He worked himself up. His whole life was a battle. He's, the Venetians take him to fight their wars, all right? If he survives, good. If he dies, they take somebody else. Unfortunately, that's how it even is today in our business. So he is still busy with his whole thing of the war, and now Iago takes that, as Maestro said, he just takes that little insecurity and start putting poison in his mind. And by the end of the quartet, where he just said to her, leave me alone, I don't want to speak to you now. I want to be alone. Eshite, solo volestar. There the derailment starts. But he's still sensible enough to tell Iago, I want proof, I definitely want proof of what happens. And then, of course, it becomes this stupid handkerchief, all right, where everybody would come. Well, it is so close. Well, this is, he is this man, having grown up his whole life, he could have said, listen, Yago's telling me this stuff, why, what's happening? No, he's so fixated on this stupid handkerchief that he doesn't think like a normal man after that. That whole handkerchief becomes for him the big issue. And every time when somebody, I'm, I also try to play it in the, in the opera, that every time somebody, even if it's the Dorjan, if they name the name Cassio, it's like it triggers something in him. It's like a thunderbolt hits him, where he's getting so uptight because of Cassio may have that handkerchief, you know? And that's the stupidity of it all. Right. You mentioned the quartet before, Anna Maria. The quartet is my favorite portion of the entire opera. So when, as far as your music in it, it's really exceptionally beautiful, but also demanding. What, what is she singing to him, to Otello, about that prompts her to sing these gloriously beautiful lines? Well, uh, she's asking, she wants to uh, touch base with him, make sure that, uh, he understands if she offended him. She's asking for forgiveness. She's reminding him that she's his girl. Uh, she's worried about him, seeing that he's sighing, that he's, he's looking down, that he's, he's definitely consumed by, by thoughts that are just uh, zapping all of his energy. Um, so everything that's fueling her is love. And everything, unfortunately, that's fueling him at that point is fear. And I've, I always think that those are the two big categories in life. We all always come either from love or we come from fear. Yeah. And our gut will always tell us which one it is, right? If it's fear, it's... At the same time that yeah. she's saying some pretty significant things, she's saying them covering really the entire range of her voice. Mm. Um, doesn't it start quite low? Yes, yes. And then it yeah. moves up to, by the time you're finished, you've sung a couple yeah. of... Yeah, it's hopefully beautiful high notes, right? <laughs> <laughs> fingers crossed, fingers crossed. <laughs> um, we talked a little bit about Cassio, but what is Desdemona's attitude 
what does she think of Cassio, and, and what, do, what do you think Cassio thinks of her? I mean, my, my approach is she, she respects him. I mean, there's distance, it's appropriate, it's, it's uh, nothing at all that should concern Otello or have him question at all her loyalty, her fidelity whatsoever. I think that she being first lady, so to speak, she would uh, just want to fulfill her role correctly and to just be appropriate with everybody. Um, I There's think- There's a significant, a significant sentence that Iago asked Otello, uh, how do you meet, how did you meet this demona? And I said, well, uh, I gave Cassio letters. He was the immediator between me and her. He was basically the guy who was bringing the messenger. The messenger, okay. And then Otello at one point just stopped and said, "Why don't you trust him?" And then Iago, because at that one point, that's one of the reasons why I, I won't say flip out, but at one point where he's getting so irritated with Iago and Iago. Well, where I ask him, what is on your mind? And he said, what is on my mind? And I go, like, and that's the first part where you see Otello really gets irritated with Iago. If you want to tell me something, then do tell me something, but stop initiating things. You know? And that's, the, that's where Iago all of a sudden, oh, okay. It's going very quickly in my direction. So, Cassio, I think what she tries to do is to, um, to be an initiator between Cassio and Otello. Because it is a harsh thing to demote a, a captain in front of all his colleagues, in front of the whole, and in front of her. Um, so I think that that's what Iago is also using, is trying to get Cassio to speak to her so that she would speak to me. To, you know, to say, all right, okay, let's let's forget the whole thing and just do it the, the other way around. And that's where Iago is, as he said, he is the snake. I mean, he is the manipulative person that, and you have you get most of that history out of the Shakespeare, where you know that that's what's going on. The way that Verdi sets conversations between Iago and Otello in this opera, that's really essential to the effectiveness of the whole piece. And it is so wildly different stylistically from the way such scenes would have been treated by Verdi if he had been writing this piece 20, 25 years before. So Bertrand, how would you describe the way the mature Verdi handles conversation musically in the opera in general and between Otello and Iago in particular. Yeah. Um, what Johann said before at the beginning of the second act, when they come, they speak like two, 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 two friends or colleagues about the day uh, schedule. Yeah? Nothing happens in the orchestra. It's a recitative, recit, no orchestra. And then at the end of the second act, it starts with nothing. And what I said before, Iago understands now that this la calumnia, you know, Barbieri di Sibilia, it's exactly what happens. La calumnia, you start to, to say something and he starts to lose, to, to lose confidence. And it's very easy for Iago to turn it. And the first time we have a real duet, it's not Desdemona. Um, I wanted to say Don Carlo Otello, but it's 
Otello Iago, they sing together at the end, like two soldiers. Yeah. They are on the same level, they're absolutely crazy, and you go to the, to the end, uh, to the pause, to the break, and you say, wow, but what happened? It's crazy, you know? And you start with a harp, the harp is the instrument for her. The first entrance, this do majeur, it's really soft. Okay, it could be, and then tremolo are coming, and then a trombone comes, and two trombones, three trombones, and then it's like no control, no under control anymore, and then you have this crazy thing. He sings a lot, he sings a lot, and Iago at the end comes and just wait. He does nothing, just wait. You put this, okay, it works. He He's doing this story alone. You know, oh. the poison is inside, and he waits. When uh, Verdi and his librettist Arrigo Boito uh, created Act Three of the piece, they gave Otello and Desdemona probably the most powerful confrontation between tenor and soprano in any of the Verdi operas, and it is really an extraordinary challenge for both singers. Anna Maria, you talked before about Desdemona being sweet, gentle, etc. But in that confrontation where he demands the, the handkerchief and he, she hasn't got it and all of that, and then he gets more and more violent with her, does she have a moment in that duet where she can assert herself and show the backbone that she has? Yeah, she, she does, uh, and in different ways. The first time that... Uh, well, when he says, um, have, have you lost it? And, no, and, and uh, well, go find it. Yeah, I'll go find it in a little, in a, in a minute. No, now. And the way that, that we do it is after he says, no, now, he'll push me across the stage. And then Verdi gives you a few bars to kind of realize, compose yourself. And then this very sweet approach comes in where yeah. she says, okay, I, I understand now. You're doing all of these things to kind of distract me from what I'm trying to bring up, the subject, which is Cassio. Come on, give him a break. She keeps going back to that, but uh, that's the first time I think she thinks something's gone terribly wrong. And one of the things I said before is that she really has to fix this and make it work. And so she's trying one approach. So she's going to try to distract him just a little bit and try her sweetness and see how that goes. But then when she says, come on, Cassio's your guy, give him a chance, and he's like, no, the handkerchief. But Cassio, come on. He's like, the yeah, handkerchief. Cassio, the Cassio so, becomes the sound <laughs> thing that Yeah, the sound he can't stand anymore, that exactly. button, that button. And the name he can't stand anymore. Um, and then she says, good God, in your voice, I'm hearing tremendous threat. And that's when she's, instead of, I, at first I thought it was, oh no, in your voice I hear threat. She's saying, hey, what the is going on? And so I'm trying to play it that way. So then you see the, what I'd like to affectionately call is the Cuban side of her personality. <laughs> no, but it's, it's the, the temperament that I think Otello probably loves about her. That yes, she's beautiful, yes. and yes, she's sweet but he knows that she has tremendous strength and that he can lean on her. And someone of his valor, of his courage, uh, needs someone that strong. 
And I think that that's when she can rise to that. And it's also very intimate. It's completely private. Nobody is in that scene with them. So this is what happens behind closed doors with a married couple sometimes. Uh, that, yeah, the only thing is that they don't come, they don't, he doesn't come, come to his senses. I mean, no. he's still um, thinking the worst case scenario. Yeah. Whereas yeah. if he was really confident in himself, he would have sat down and they would have talked about the whole thing. But I think what happens also with the tragedy here is that Otello's weakness is this, is this fear that has to do with losing the most yes. precious thing. Yeah. And Iago figured that out. Mm -hmm. and, and like we've, you've been saying, mm -hmm. just that the poison is set. And no matter what you say, that is fixed in his head. Yeah, you see, the name Cassio is yeah. that, that poison. And the moment she says Cassio, it just starts driving him completely insane without she knowing why when every time she says Cassio, he's going completely nuts. I because mean, she thinks it's probably going to calm him down since yeah, she thinks, you know, you know <laughs> he's such a dear friend of his like, and maybe there was a misunderstanding. There's like two boats that just... Yeah. Johan, you have a really extraordinary monologue to sing after the duet with Desdemona and the beginning of the monologue has a very unusual marking. Verdi asks you for vo con voce soffocata. Exactly. So literally a suffocated voice. So obviously if you observe that, you wouldn't be able to sing. So how do you handle that? If you want to be true, faithful to the score, how do you handle something like that? Well, again, it's uh, finding the right color for it. and. Uh, when I did it with a colleague of us, uh, Simone Young, uh, she said, you know, think of it that he was just running a marathon and now he has to sing Dio Mi Potevi. And it is just a thing that if you also look at the score, it's a lot of 16th notes. And Voce Suffocate is something close like speaking it instead of singing it, but then have a color there where it is very dark, a very dark color, and as if you're out of breath. And I'm trying my best to do it. Uh, uh, hope that it w it's not always working the way you want it. Um, some nights you're getting into it and you're so full of energy and all of a sudden you have to go like, <laughs> and you go like, <laughs> and, but, and you know, and then uh, uh, just two, uh, a half a page later, he really have to start singing, you know. Uh, it's a very hard challenge for me. I mean, I love challenges, and I drive myself every day to find that point of doing it. That's one of the pieces that never leaves me alone. Whenever I'm walking around the street, I will go like, you know, when something when you, something happens with you and you get irritated by people doing stuff that you think, oh, I think, okay, that could work for Diomi Potevi. <laughs> so the whole blooming <laughs> life for me is getting over Diomi Potevi, that, that whole th uh, monologue. Um, Bertrand, there is a film of, um, of Otello which is directed and conducted by Herbert von Karajan. <laughs> and when I saw it, I was flabbergasted because he cut about two-thirds of the concertato that is the big ensemble that closes act three, just sort of removed it arbitrarily. So t 
what was gone was the dialogues between, that Iago has first with Otello and then with uh, Roderigo in the middle of that ensemble. So what is going on in that concertato and, and why, why is it important to keep every note of it? You know, it's this concertato, uh, it's the big challenge, I think, for the conductor in, uh, in this show. You love the quartet, I do love the quartet too. The challenge is the concertato. Um, you start from this moment, a terra e piangi, the orchestra may, or may play once, very brutal. You say brutal? Brutal, yeah, brutal, yeah very hard. And I thought, bam, bam, bam. I told the musician, it, has, it doesn't have to be beautiful, it has to be, bam. And then she starts. The concertato, mm -hmm. with speaking, singing, and then the, we have the crier looking at that. They don't understand what happened. She's alone. He's crazy. You have other people, this crazy situation. And then you have this guy, Iago, controlling his man. Okay. Then I have to speak, and they leave tomorrow morning. I have to organize something that Casio. Then, good, okay. Pop. He's the only guy with Rodrigo in control in this horrible situation. He's, it's awful, this dialogue, you know? They all speak about catastrophe, and he's okay. Um, we have to kill him. You do yes. Casio, I yeah. Yeah, and uh, okay. It's okay, yes, okay. That's so cynical. Cynical, you say? Yes. Also psychopathic. Yeah, psychopathic. It's, yeah. But this can you see that in movies, you know? Klaus Kinski or this kind of, this kind on his way. That was it so important. But I didn't know the story about Karian. I'm sorry, I didn't realize. What's so brilliant is that those two dialogues that you were just describing are happening while everything else is going on yeah. around all yes. the, the chorus is singing, yes. Desdemona mm. is singing, everybody else is singing. All the people sing something. Iago is literally telling me in so many words that because of you want the, what's happening now, you have to kill her tonight. Mm. And on the, her bed. Yeah. And on her bed. <laughs> I mean, to that's a said lot. Well, leave it. No, that's really what's happening. Kill her. Uh, and where kill where him. I say, uh, I need to speak to you. I said, okay. Um, I will, you take care of this demona tonight, have to, it has to be tonight, I will take care of Cassio. And that's when he said, when I said, who's going to kill Cassio? And he said, I will. I said, okay, then you do it. But in the fact, after that he asked Rodrigo, Rodrigo to do that. Yes. <laughs> he, no, I did nothing. Yes. So everyone, when you're listening to the ensemble, I know you'll be captivated by what's going on orchestrally and in the chorus and everything, but pay very close attention to those dialogues, first between Otello and Iago, and then between Iago and Roderigo. Now, Ana Maria, with the exception of three lines from your maid, Emilia, the first 15 minutes of the last act are yours alone, singing first the Willow Song and then the Ave Maria. So in the Shakespeare play, she also sings the Willow Song. Well, what do you think prompts this song to come to Desdemona's mind? I think that uh, what was established in the, in the beginning, again, if you, if you know the, the, the fact that she fell in love with Otello through the stories that he would tell, that's how she got to know him. 
Um, stories play a big part, I think, in her mind and her comforting herself, which I think that she doesn't understand what's going on. She still has no clue. She knows that everything is lost, but she has no idea what's going on. This is a story that she establishes was one that she would hear a lot. It's like a lullaby in a way. It's calming her. And she's, I think, beginning to identify with some of the feelings that Barbara in the song, in the story, would, would feel. So she's beginning to see parallels. And that's how she, because she's still very young, she's smart and she's courageous, but she's about 18, maximum 20. Um, she's, uh, she's beginning to, to say, oh yeah, I remember this song. And oh, oh wow. And I think she can identify and relate with what the story is telling in that song to what's happening with her. And then she says, uh, this woman, Barbara, in the story, loved a man, and he later abandoned her. And what she knows is that Otello doesn't love her anymore. And for her, even though she doesn't know that she's going to die that night, she feels all is lost for her. If she no longer has his love and his trust, her life means nothing. There's nothing else for her. And I think that that's why she sings that. Well, what's interesting, too, is that there's no, it's not about virtuosic vocalism at all, even though you do have a beautiful soft high note to sing at the end of the Ave Maria, and then you have a great climactic phrase, uh, forte, when you're bidding farewell to Emilia. So given that, given that it's not about vocalism per se, how does Verdi use her voice throughout the scene to make her emotions clear? And, and what do you need vocally to sing this music well? Well, I think, um and we've worked on it, and I'm so grateful, as I've told you, for everything you've helped me to see in this, and everything Verdi wrote, the dynamics, the colors, uh, how to truly bring out the texture of the words and the, the psychology with which the words are used in this context to just show so much shading of feeling of what she's feeling. And sometimes if you take away the continuous virtuosic needs of the singer, you get down to the text and the story. She's terrified. She's so lost. And there have to be moments of yearning, which we get in Salce. There have to be moments of complete aloneness again, which is something that both Otello and Desdemona have in common. That's their common bond, is that they're always, they are ultimately isolated and alone. Um, moments of fear, moments of hope in her prayer. And the Ave Maria, if you ever pray, whichever your belief, usually prayers are quite quiet and they're very intimate. And that, and there are, I think, six pianissimi written in, in the Ave Maria at one point. So I had never seen that in a score <laughs> before. So it's about establishing that intimacy and her, her true inner, most quiet thoughts. And um, I think that the, one of the moments that is most moving, where I always get the chills, is, is at the end of the Ave Maria, where um, it, it just, it's so beautiful. So, and I think that Verdi had uh, quite an ability, not just at that moment and in other moments of this opera, but in other masterworks, to access the divine, whatever that means to, to all of us. He had a direct connection to that, channeled it, and was able to put it on, on paper. Bertrand, there's an extraordinary moment orchestrally that I hope you can explain what's going on. Um, 
it's the it's from the end of the Ave Maria into the entrance of Otello. Can you explain that orchestrally so that the audience will yeah. anticipate? If it? I just may, may, may say one thing before uh, about orchestration, this aria is with one instrument, English horn. That the first time you hear this instrument in the evening, and when we worked on the when we spoke about the aria together, I told her, you know, this English horn is your partner. For me, it's not an aria. It's a duet without singer as partner, but an instrument. And I think Verdi tried to write the acoustic from a church or a temple, or I don't know. And uh, you have this solo instrument, and then she sings. And they say, salce, 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 instrument, answer, piram. And after that, he writes dolce, and she says, cantiamo. For me, this cantiamo, it's not in the story, but it's cantiamo with you. Because when you are alone, sad, sick, depressed, you want to be with somebody, and that she finds this player. And the third time, salce, 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 he doesn't want that anymore. And then she says, Emilia, addio, because this instrument doesn't answer. And then you have this Ave Maria, just strings. When Otello starts, first act, four celli, the low part, but with bottom, with sensuality. Just the strings, and then at the end of a Maria, your first violin, second violin, the celli stop, and the viola in a very high register, the highest note Verdi ever wrote for viola, re bemol. I was a viola player. You are like that when you play this. It's so high, extremely. Amen. Ah, and you are like that. The tension, the first violin, extremely high. And then you come back to the reality, the contrabasses, in the low register. We spoke about contrast with Shakespeare, that's one of these, yeah? The cello with him, the high strings, and the And that's when Otello enters. That's Otello enters, and it's unbelievable. You have three lines, it's written, he opens a door, a secret door. He writes an accent, boom. It's like You know Wagner, the ring, the worm with a bust, Bas tuba or Wagner tuba, it's exactly, but that snake, Iago music with his entrance. When he comes in, it's not Otello anymore. Mm -hmm. He's the body of Otello, the voice of Otello, I hope. <laughs> and but here, it's Iago. Now, Johan, you have had a lot of experience smothering Desdemonas. <laughs> so the question is, how do you do it? How do you make it realistic looking, but at the same time without hurting your soprano? Well, that's the biggest challenge for everybody, every time when we do it. Um, and you're so considerate, I have to say. Well, very, very you know, um, it is a dangerous situation for all, everybody on that stage at that point, because uh, as a character of Otello, I sometimes can get lose, I can lost myself in the part. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, the thing is, there's, there's a few things that we have to do to be safe. 
Uh, those things are being practiced with a fight or a fence master. Uh, things that I've ha learned in South Africa in the opera school, we have learned how to do the strangling physically uh, at some points. You know, now the thing is here, um, it's quite easy to explain it to somebody. If I grab her around the neck with my two hands, she grabs onto my arms, and that's why she's doing the movement. I'm not doing any movement because if I do do the movement, I can hurt her. And so if she grabs onto my arms, she has the ability to control the movement. And then it's like a dance. You dance the dance and until at the end of that dance, she's dead. All right, it's unfortunate to say it, but that's how we do. And that's why I always insist when we do the Othello that we have a fence master or a master that can teach her the way to do the movements so that she's in control of it, okay? And if she doesn't feel in control, there's a certain point where she can either dig her nails into my arm, all right? Aww. Or, no, but that's, the, that's my cue to say, hey, you're getting too rough, all right? So that's why we always have to rehearse that. And that's why I always insist on having people professionally having, doing fights and stuff between singers on the stage, even if I have to push her on the ground or where I have to slap her or things like that. It is things that have to be practiced because if she's too close to me and I do this, I mean, I can really hurt her. And that's not my, I don't want to hurt somebody on the stage because I know how much power I have in my arms. Uh, I've, in Pagliacci, that's why I said, you try it out in Pagliacci, and when, you've, when you learn to control your anger with Pagliacci, uh, you know what you can do. I send a few tables flying uh, in the stage. In one production of Otello, what I did in, uh, was in Berlin, where the producer asked me just for, between me and Iago, just to throw the, my desk where I was working over and I was so into the part I just do this with and the table made a 360 degree turn <laughs> and it was a huge oak table nobody <laughs> and the guy said okay perhaps you just push it over <laughs> it is you know you this is the part that, that's what I said, that's the danger with pieces like Otello and Pagliacci uh, or Verismo. You have to learn to be on control 80% of the time. And I've also said to her, if you don't do the movement, I have to do the movement. And I, if I have to do the movement, you're going to get hurt. So when she grabs onto my arms, she's in control of it and she can put the point where until it ends. And that's how we do it. And that's how we try to keep everybody safe on the stage. And that's for me the most important thing. You know, it's funny, if you have the chance to look at the schedule before a show, the show is at seven, you have a rehearsal at 6.30. It's not a musical rehearsal or a band it's a fight rehearsal in every opera house. Or yeah. smothering rehearsal. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, the thing is there's certain moves that you have to do. If uh, she have to move, she's the one sign that you have to give me that we can start. Because if she doesn't give that 
signal, I'm not going to go there because it's too dangerous. All right? There's always great eye contact. Yes, you have to have the eye contact between each other and you have, all right. Uh, I've done at the Met, I don't know if you saw the Met broadcast with Rene Fleming and the producer decided that I have to come from the back and strangle her like this. Now, that's pretty dangerous because one false move and I can really break her neck. So I told Rene, when I do this, you grab like this arm with both your hands and you do the movement. The, the, I'm only going to feel what you're going to do because when she's got their hands, I know we're in control of it. And she was doing, um, she was putting up a fight. I was just hanging in for dear life, <laughs> making sure that I'm not losing, that she doesn't lose that grip until the end of the fight and then she rolled over to the bed, which she still have my arm. She can roll over with a controlled roll over the, off the bread onto the stairs, not ending up in the orchestra pit, where I can still keep her from rolling away. And that's how we did it. So it is very important, especially for me, I, I insist on that. In every opera where I sing, if there's any physical fights between me, even with, with, between me and Iago, there have to be a person that can tell the cut because 80% of the other singers haven't learned, like I have learned, to do these fights. I mean, it's like a Hollywood stunt thing, you know? If you don't know how to do it, you can hurt yourself. Now, Anna Maria, you're dead on this bed for at least 10 minutes before the end of the opera. So you can't hold your breath for 10 minutes. So how do you, what do you do to, to pretend to be dead? Uh, yeah, you know, I was thinking about that the other rehearsal. I thought, wow, I'm not even on my side where I could be more discreet. I'm really flat on my back. Oh, gee whiz. But um, I, breathing is such a big part of what we do as singers. Yes. And this is a pretty soft mattress. So I just make sure that my lower back is, is really, like that's where I'm breathing from gently. So I feel almost as if the expansion is behind, not so much uh, here. Yeah. So hopefully you won't see too much. Oh, yeah. so far on this dark yeah. stage. So. And, and you have had a fair amount of experience of dying on the stage anyway. <laughs> I go through the same thing with Bohem, and, and I always say, uh, you know, make sure that, um, uh, that the muff, you know, is not, I always tell my, my cast, please make sure that when I die, the muff is not like on my stomach because you're gonna see the muff going up and down, you know, yeah. when I'm breathing. <laughs> Little, little silly things like that, but yeah, no, you, you make it work, it's um, fine. Bertrand, you've mentioned that we should be listening for the English horn in Act 4. Are there any other particular solo instruments in the course of this piece that you think our audience should be anticipating and paying particular attention to in the score? I think this, the, 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 the English horn and maybe the solo cello before, before he starts, the, the love duet. It's something very special. The, 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 the strings are going to pam 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 pim pim pam pam. Always it's pam 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 pam. It's excitement and, and the cello plays like calming, bring high, and then the quartet. I think this this solo. It's not an opera with a lot of solo. Normally we say Verdi has always clarinet. Yeah, when the soprano is alone, clarinet, Taviata all the time. Uh, Luisa Miller, big clarinet solo here, not so much. With you, 
un, uh, un bacio, un bacio, maybe she's, yeah, un bacio, she's alone, but not really, it's not a very uh, solistic opera. Solo cello, you know, um, Toscanini was the second cello the first time uh, for the opening night from, from, from Otello, yeah? And uh, Verdi had love for this instrument. In Masnadieri, maybe you know in Masnadieri, in the overture of Masnadieri, you have big solo cello. Fantastic. I think these two instruments are important. We've run out of time, but I do want to ask everyone, what, what do you hope the audience will carry away from seeing and hearing this Otello production, especially the people who are experiencing this piece for the first time, because we have not done it since 2001. So there will be a lot of people who will be new to it. What I'm trying to show people um, when I'm doing a piece of Otello is what jealousy is all about. Uh, Iago says in the first, in the first, in the second act, be aware of jealousy, it's a green-eyed monster. And Otello at that point doesn't really know what it's meaning, but, you know, on the stage, when I killed her, or when somebody else gets killed, when the curtain comes in, that person still gets to walk home afterwards. In real life, it's a different story. We all know that jealousy is one of the most dangerous emotions that is in every one of us. And that's the most thing I try to show the people, this is what can happen if you derail like that. And if I can tell them to perhaps go and seek counseling, I mean, where the hotel is one of the biggest things where they lock him up and have him counseling for the rest of his life. I mean, that's what was supposed to be to happen. Yago, okay, you get people like Yago, you do get them. They are alive, they are living, they are, they are intriguing in every life and form, and they, you will find them. You just have to open your eyes and see and look around you, and you will see those people. I mean, I see a lot of them. I will sit in restaurants and or in bars. That's my most favorite thing to do in life, is sitting in a restaurant or in a hotel, in the lobby, or at the airport, and see how people interact with each other. And you will find a lot of Yagos, <laughs> a lot of them, you know? And Yago, a Yago is in each and every one of us. There's an Otello in each and every one of us. This, jealousy per this jealous person is so, you don't listen to reason anymore. The only thing is you're just on this rail, derailing. And if I can show somebody in the audience, this is what it's all about. Um, only difference is here, she can stand up. And I can ask her, sorry, and we can go home afterwards. In real life, not that's necessarily a together. <laughs> <laughs> no, but the thing is, yeah, okay. Uh, but I think you get the message, you know. Um, in the real life, if somebody's get killed, that's the end of it. There's no turning back. And if I can show somebody that one second, and I'm that's what I'm trying to play through the whole evening. 
that one second where it goes wrong, I've reached somebody. And that's what I'm trying to do. And if I, the audience can just look at that one second, uh, I've done what I was supposed to do. And I'd, I'd like to add that, yes, there's a Iago in us. There's an Otello in us. So you've got the snake. You've got the, the vulnerable one that has that button to be pushed, which is yeah. Otello. And then you have this demona whose purpose is to choose the light. And she's constantly trying to bring light and love to him. And so he's presented with the snake, which is darkness, and yes. she's trying to bring the light. Mm -hmm. And at the end, when, even when she dies, she has purified her soul in a way she's, she's checked in with herself. And she says, innocente, I die innocent, but there's something about the light and something about innocence with that light, which I interpret as purity. Mm -hmm. And that's also inside of us. So if you feel that that snake is coming at you, yeah. choose the light. And if you yeah. go in that route, you'll cast out the darkness. Maybe not right away, no. but you will. You know, we've got a brain and I think that the good Lord have told us, you know, he gives you two choices and you have to sit down and make see how the choices are what you are making is going to end up in the future and he gives you the brain to choose the right light you know the right choice hopefully unfortunately so many people choose the wrong right <laughs> trust 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 the light trust yeah. the light. Oh, is there something yeah. you would like to add to it's that? fantastic what you both said i just want to 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 just do a remark uh, the end of falstaff the next and the last opera from uh, verdi it's the only one comic is tutto il mondo il burlalo. Yeah? How do you say that in English? Well, all the, everything is a farce. Yeah, all, no, the whole, whole world, world is a joke. It's, it's, it's a, a joke, joke. It's a joke. Mm -hmm. That is Falstaff. Ortello is exactly the combination between operatic and reality. When you look at that, it's a story. It can be today. It's not tutto il mondo il burlalo. It's exactly, wow. That's why I think the people see this story. Okay, we have costumes. Yeah. All the but wow, it is possible. It is possible. Thank all of you very much indeed. Thank you. Thank you.